If there's one central message of the book, it's that libertarianism is, you know, no, no matter how many libertarians you know or have talked to or argued with, libertarianism is a much more radically diverse intellectual movement than you probably recognize. There are a lot more ways of being libertarian than most people recognize. I'm Aaron Ross Powell. And I'm Trevor Burrus. And this is Freedom, a show about ideas that matter. Freedom is an independent, listener-supported show. If you value these conversations, please consider becoming a supporter. You'll get access to episode transcripts, bonus content, and our Discord community. Learn more at freedom.audio slash join, or look for the link in the show notes. There's an old joke that if you ask two libertarians their opinions about something, you'll get three different answers. The liberty movement has always had its disagreements and infighting. But is there a core idea common to all libertarians, something that defines libertarianism? In the new book, The Individualists, Radicals, Reactionaries, and the Struggle for the Soul of Libertarianism, Matt Zolinski and John Tomasi set out their own answer and use it to trace the history of the libertarian movement. Matt, a philosophy professor at the University of San Diego, joins us today to talk about libertarianism, its complex and often fractious evolution, and the tension within the liberty movement between radicals and reactionaries. We're talking today about the history and contours of the libertarian movement. So I'll begin with a pretty straightforward question that I think is necessary to get the conversation kicked off, which is, how do you define libertarianism? Oh, yeah. Super straightforward question. Very easy to answer. Uh, now, John, John and I struggled. Uh, a great deal with this question, actually, in the course of writing our book, um, because the approach that we wanted to take wasn't simply to stipulate something, right? Stipulate some definition and then draw a line around libertarians that you know, ruled out 50% of them who, who didn't accord with our stipulated definition. We wanted to survey the lay of the land of people who identified themselves as or were generally identified by others as um, libertarian and see what, if anything, they had in common. And that makes it hard because, you know, it can't be something like the non-aggression principle, because although you can find people like Marie Rothbard who explicitly endorse non-aggression principle and people like Ayn Rand who seem to endorse something pretty similar, you know, there are a lot of canonical libertarians who don't endorse anything like that. Milton Friedman, Friedrich Hayek, even Ludwig von Mises. So the approach that we took was to define libertarianism in terms of a kind of family resemblance. Right? We think of it as like this libertarian family out there, um, all of whom have a number of things in common, like family members are wont to do, but uh, also a great deal of variety within that family. Um, and so we define the family in terms of six core concepts that we think all libertarians have in common, uh, and those are a commitment first and foremost to the importance of property rights, the significance of property rights. Um, second, a commitment to free markets, um, a skepticism of authority in general, but in particular of governmental authority, uh, a commitment to freedom, of course, uh, libertarians believe in liberty, and specifically, they believe in negative liberty, the uh, the kind of liberty that consists of non-interference from others in some protected sphere. Libertarians are 
individualists, um, normatively individualists. They hold that the individual is the core of moral significance in the world, that, uh, that rights inhere in individuals, not in groups. Uh, also methodological individualists oftentimes as well. Uh, and libertarians believe in spontaneous order, that order is something that can um, and as much as possible should be allowed to emerge from the bottom up rather than something that's imposed from the top down. So um, those are the six concepts. There's a tremendous amount of variation in terms of how those concepts are interpreted, which is why we think we find such variation among the libertarian family. All of those concepts are tremendously open-ended, right? There's not just one obviously correct way of understanding what it is to take property rights seriously, for instance. And so different libertarians, by interpreting that concept differently, right? Does property rights apply to the realm of ideas? Does it apply to natural resources? How absolute is that property right? What do we do when property rights are violated? How do we make up for those kinds of uh, infringements? By interpreting, by answering those questions differently, you get a, a very wide range of forms of libertarian and, and a wide range of views on different kinds of issues of public policy um, from the most fundamental, like should there be a state or not, all the way to the more technical, uh, should we have intellectual property at all? Should there be patents but not copyrights or vice versa uh, and so forth? Does the word teach us anything or is it does it have its own kind of like why, why we use that word? Because I know it hasn't, we, in, in Europe, they use the word liberal. We, we are, or people use the word liberal and that, I call myself a radical liberal now, but, but is it, does it just go back to a different definition of liberty, whether someone puts liberty at the core of their political philosophy and then what their definition of liberty is, or should we just treat the word as a historical artifact that, you know, one, why they call why they say liberal and we say libertarian is historical artifact and we can't learn much from it. Yeah, I mean, I don't know that it teaches us much that's not already obvious, right? Libertarians, the etymology of the term is somebody who believes in liberty. Um, and originally, libertarian uh, was uh, used as a term to refer to a kind of metaphysical doctrine rather than a political one. So libertarians were people who believed in the idea of free will um, rather than necessitarians, as they were called, or determinists who uh, believed that everything was, um, was fixed. Um, but the term libertarian itself really didn't come about until the late 19th, early 20th century. And a lot of the people that we would now identify as among the earliest libertarians, people like Herbert Spencer, for instance, in Britain, people like Frederick Bastiat uh, in France, or Gustave de Molinari, none of those people called themselves libertarians. Um, in, uh, in Britain, the people who we now call libertarians uh, refer to themselves as individualists generally, which is one reason we called the book what we did. Um, in France, they mostly called themselves liberals or political economists. Um, the first use of the term libertarian uh, was actually, in a political context, was actually uh, by a French anarcho-socialist um, and it was only later in the early part of the 20th century, a little bit in the late 19th, co-opted by people who we would now more readily identify as libertarian. What's the genesis of this movement? Like, Can we point to a particular 
time when something we identify as libertarianism, even if they weren't using that term yet, began or a particular philosophy it grew out of or a particular, I guess, motivating event or issue that that led to this, what we now call the libertarian movement. Yeah, this is, again, something that John and I um, struggled with a great deal in writing the book, uh, because there are people who have talked or written about the history of libertarian ideas who uh, will try to trace those ideas just as far back as possible, right? So, you know, maybe Jesus was a libertarian, or maybe, uh, you know, um, some early Chinese intellectuals were libertarian in certain ways. You can find things that they said that have a libertarian valence to them. Um, we didn't want to do that because that seemed, seemed to us like a stretch. Um, even, even talking about people like Adam Smith and David Hume and Immanuel Kant as libertarians seemed to us a stretch, although the resemblance there is, is closer, we think, um, you know, the early classical liberals, um, tick a lot of boxes on the six markers of membership that we identified, right? Uh, so, you know, Smith was a believer in property rights and spontaneous order and free markets and uh, all of that stuff. Um, but there seemed to us to be something special about the 19th century, something different that started to emerge around the middle of the 19th century, specifically in Britain and in France first, only a little bit later in the United States. Um, and you see this in a flurry of writings published ar around the same time, um, all of which have a distinctively and recognizably libertarian character to them. So for instance, in 1849, Gustave Molinari publishes The Production of Security, which is the first essay a explaining and endorsing the idea that all of the services of government could and perhaps should be provided by voluntary means, by the marketplace. Um, and so in a lot of people regard this as kind of the first statement of anarcho-capitalism, um, as it would later come to be known and, uh, and be explicated by people like Rothbard. Um, Frederick Basquiat publishes The Law in 1850, which is um, kind of the most treatise-like of all of Bastiat's work where he kind of ties together his thoughts on economics and morality into kind of an overarching political philosophy of the state, a very, very libertarian uh, text. And in 1851, Herbert Spencer publishes Social Statics, which I regard really as the first systematic libertarian treatise uh, in, in the recognizable sense that Social Statics starts with the articulation of a kind of fundamental moral principle. Uh, in this case, it's the law of equal freedom. And then the rest of the book really is uh, an attempt to show how that principle applies to a wide range of social issues from the rights of women and children to the welfare state to colonialism. Um, so so within just three years, you're getting, you're getting three books which again, have a lot in common with the earlier classical liberal works in terms of their commitment to property rights and free markets and all that. But what sets them apart, I think, is a kind of radical edge. 
Um, so um, what you see in the libertarians uh, around this era is a belief that the establishment of a just society would require a kind of radical sweeping away of a whole bunch of established institutions. Um, you see a kind of absolutism in their position that was absent from earlier classical liberals. So whereas earlier classical liberals would talk about property rights and limited government, these things were in large part presumptions that were to be balanced against other kinds of considerations. And so, um, you know, if you wanted to do public policy, if you wanted to think about the role of government, um, you couldn't just sort of start with a single axiom and then deduce everything from that. You'd have to take a whole bunch of different principles, kind of try to your best to balance them all together, um, and then come up with some highly imperfect solution. For the libertarians in the 19th century, everything is, is much more radical, absolute. There's a lot more of a kind of a priori character to libertarian reasoning um, so that you know it's, it's more of a process of logical deduction from first principles rather than uh, induction from a range of cases. And, um, you know, back, back to your question of like, what sparked all of this? Um, the position that we take in the book is that uh, libertarianism emerged when and where it did and in the form that it did because of the emerging threat of socialism. Uh, so libertarianism was born out of a reaction to the threat of state socialism, which in Europe, you know, with the 1848 revolutions, um, was really shaping up to be um, a, a serious political threat to individual freedom as, as these individuals saw it. Uh, so the hypothesis is that faced with this very stark image of what the antithesis of freedom was on their lights, um, libertarians kind of defined their own view in opposition to that and radicalized these earlier classical liberal commitments um, in, from presumptions into moral absolutes on the grounds that, uh, look, if you, if you give an inch to the state socialists, um, no matter how reasonable the request for this or that state intervention might sound, uh, they're going to come one after another. And before you know it, that is where you're going to end up. Um, and so we have to draw a line in the sand, so to speak, and, and, um, and not give an inch, essentially. Does this mean that you reject the relatively common thesis that sees the genesis of the, at least the American libertarian movement among abolitionists, the, the radical abolitionists as kind of the birth of it, so it was a response to slavery in the no, U.S.? I I actually think that's that's right, um, and I think the the kind of libertarianism that you saw in the nineteenth century American context was pretty starkly different from the kind of libertarianism that you saw in nineteenth century Britain and France. Um, and uh, you know the similarity is that you had individuals who were committed to freedom and who were defining their own commitment in response to a reaction against what they saw as the paradigmatic case of unfreedom. So in Britain and France, the paradigmatic case of unfreedom was socialism. In America, the paradigmatic case of unfreedom was slavery. And so libertarianism defined itself as not that. 
Um, right. So, um, what that meant was that you actually got a kind of libertarianism emerging in America that looked pretty sharply different from the kind of libertarianism that you saw in, in Britain and France, um, much less focused on questions of economic intervention, um, right? The idea of the free market as the paradigm case of freedom was much less central to the American libertarians because, again, they weren't reacting against socialism. The idea wasn't, we have to protect the free market at all costs or else. The idea for them was it's the individual's entitlement to the fruits of his or her own labor. That's the core. Uh, that is what slavery denies. And so if we don't want that, that's the principle that we have to commit ourselves to. And that took them in some fairly strange directions by modern light. So a lot of the earlier libertarians in the American context, people like Benjamin Tucker, most prominently, uh, were highly critical of capitalism um, and much more willing to align themselves with socialists. Um, because on their view, a lot of the socialists shared that same fundamental commitment to the individual's right to the product of their own labor, right? Why is it that socialists didn't like capitalism. Well, the story is, you know, they believed that the capitalist was unjustly expropriating the fruits of the workers' labor. Um, so the socialist diagnosis of capitalism is one that is based on a principle that a lot of libertarians share. They just, in a lot of cases, disagree with you know, the way in which that principle is applied. But the principle itself is one they hold it. That's to but you know Tucker was was very critical of of rent, of the idea of charging money for you know the use of the land. He was critical of, of interest, of charging interest. Um, so a lot of positions that strike twentieth and twenty first century libertarians as odd. Um, but I think the explanation there lies in um, understanding where that libertarianism came from in terms of what it was defining itself against um and and so how it it understood its own fundamental moral and economic commitments we went right to where i was going to ask just to expand on that a little bit um you guys do not define libertarianism as you're you're not going to you don't in the book decide who is or isn't a libertarian in any sort of granular way you focus on issues but as you pointed out a lot of 19th century libertarians had very different views of, of, in your chapter, land, labor, and ownership about what was allowed at those times. Um, what changed? I mean, was there, there, it seems like when I go read people from Thomas Hodgkin uh, to, as you pointed out, Benjamin Tucker, uh, and a lot of those people in between, they, they sound like what we would now call socialists quite often in, in the sense that they're basically articulating a theory against domination and then defining what domination is, which could include being employed and paying rent and paying interest and all those things. Um, so is there something that changed, made it much more sort of absolute toward property rights or, or get away from the labor movement or any of those, those issues? Yeah, it's interesting. It, it did quite clearly change a lot um, because you know, if you're a libertarian today and you go back, as, as many libertarians do, and they read... Bastiat, or they read Herbert Spencer, it sounds very, very comfortable and familiar. 
right? Like these are exactly the kinds of things that a libertarian could be writing today. Whereas if you go back and you read um, Tucker, for sure, um, it looks quite foreign. Um, so, you know, 20th and 21st century American libertarianism almost seem to have more in common with 19th century British and French libertarianism than they do with their own American antecedents. So what is it that changed? I think it's, I think it's two things, um, two main things. The first is um, kind of progress in, in economics that undermined some of the um, empirical, quasi-empirical claims that uh, the 19th century American libertarians were drawing upon uh, in making their, their arguments. So, um, you know, the Marxian theory of exploitation uh, seems to depend uh, for its strength on uh, a commitment to something like the labor theory of value. When the marginal revolution came about in the late 19th century, that seemed to essentially demolish the labor theory of value and, and with it, um, arguably the core of the Marxian theory of exploitation, um, along with the basis for objecting to uh, interest uh, on, on moral grounds. Um, so some of the some of the political or economic views that 19th century libertarians had seemed to depend upon economic an understanding of economics that simply changed quite radically uh, in the last part of the 19th century. Um, the other thing, though, that changed is that uh, while in the 19th century libertarians saw the paradigmatic threat to liberty as stemming from s slavery. Um, in the 20th century, that changed to socialism. Uh, socialism in the 19th century American context simply wasn't regarded as much of a threat. Uh, there wasn't any active state socialist movement in the United States. Socialism was not uh, an active revolutionary force. Uh, the socialists you had in the 19th century were essentially voluntary socialists. They were people who wanted to get together and like live on some land out in the countryside and... Um, you know, divide up the farming, everybody about me, really, right? But like libertarians have no problem with that. Like if that's how you want to go live your life, you know, more power to you. Um, but in the 20th century, um, that changed. You still didn't really have much of an, an active socialist, you know, kind of revolutionary movement at home. Um, but you did have in international socialism as becoming more of a threat with the expansion of the Soviet Union uh, in the... In the third uh, and fourth decade of the century. Um, and also the, the worry that um, socialist ideas were going to be kind of implemented in an almost kind of Fabian way um, in the United States. So what really birthed the 20th century libertarian movement in the United States was the New Deal. Um, and a lot of libertarians believed, not without some justification, that FDR was attempting to bring in a lot of um, socialist principles and socialist policies to the United States, uh, and that this was something that needed to be resisted uh, in, in full force. Uh, and so socialism, not a threat during the 19th century in America, came to be regarded as the central threat to liberty in 20th century America. And so with that, the self-understanding, the self-definition of libertarians in America changed to one where opposition to socialism took center stage and crowded out a lot of other issues that um, 
had previously captured the attention of libertarians. So, um, you know, a lot of 19th century libertarians were radical feminists, um, were, um, were very skeptical, not just of the authority of the state, but of the authority of, uh, established religion, <laughs> uh, of the authority, even of, you know, conventional morality, um, all of that kind of went out the window and the focus was almost exclusively on fighting socialism, defending free markets. Um, that's what libertarianism is. How much of that shift from, I mean, one way we could think about that, or we could frame it in kind of contemporary terms, is that early American libertarianism looked like a largely left-wing movement. The, the motivating concerns were concerns that we seem to see represented on the left much more than the right. And then in the mid-20th century, that shifted to the mode that those things that were primarily concerns of the left kind of dropped away in significance, feminism, racial justice, workers' rights, et cetera, to be replaced with stuff that looked more like what we contemporarily think of as issues the right cares about. Uh, how much of that was libertarians saying the biggest threat is socialism, we're going to focus all of our energy on that? And how much of it was the rise of the the fusionist movement in the 50s and 60s, which saw kind of a an allying with the right and so an importation of more people from the right into the movement. Yeah, I think it's it's certainly both. Um and I think, you know, it's it really started the fusionist movement, uh, although, you know, it didn't didn't get that name from Frank Meyer until uh somewhat later. The the left the sort of libertarian conservative fusion was was there almost from the very beginning in 20th century libertarianism so right from the beginning of opposition to the new deal libertarians found themselves uh in common cause with the right generally speaking um you know the, the conservatives um had um you know a, a number ago there were a lot more conservatives in the united states both in the intellectual movement um and and popular than there were libertarians. Um, and these were much more established figures. And so it was sort of natural for people like um, like Ayn Rand, like Isabel Patterson, like Rose Wilder Lane, for instance, um, H.L. Mencken, uh, Albert J. Nock, to align themselves with the quote-unquote old right um, because they were on the same page with what they regarded as the central defining issue of their day. Uh, so right from the beginning in terms of opposition to the New Deal, libertarians and conservatives were making common cause. And so, you know, that that affects the kind of issues that you tend to emphasize um, and those that you tend to de-emphasize, both, both because, right, that's, you know, whatever you think about women's rights, that that's not the important issue right now. The important issue is beating the New Deal. And also there's probably some of this, right? Like, look, <laughs> we're trying to keep these people as allies. If we're talking too much about women's rights and racial justice, that's going to alienate them. So let's just keep our heads down and focus on winning this battle in front of us. Well, that, that gets into your kind of your guys' overarching thesis that libertarianism pulls and pushes against radicalism and reactionaryism or progressivism and reactionaryism. So 
can you expound on that a little bit more? Is the rea- is this relative reactionary ideas that are meaning people who are reacting to whatever is being prevailing at the time just because they want to preserve the status quo? So reacting against, say, a movement for women's rights or gay rights. Um, and then relative radical ideas where the people are pushing and it kind of sits in the middle there. Is that is that essentially what you're saying? Yeah, so the um, this distinction between you know, radical and reactionary forms of libertarianism, um, there's, there's a few things going on there, uh, actually. So, the, I mean, there's this, you know, what is what do we mean by reactionary, for instance, right? So um, one thing we mean by reactionary is just, in, there's a sense in which all libertarianism, as we understand it, is reactionary insofar as libertarianism tends to define itself in, in reaction to what it perceives as the paradigm threat to freedom. So this is why you get libertarianism taking very different forms in the uh, you know, American context and British context in the 19th century. Um, and now in you know the 21st century, when we don't have socialism really or slavery uh, against which to define ourselves, we now find ourselves as libertarians in a bit of a, um, at a bit of a loss in terms of our own, our own self-understanding. Um, so there's a sense in which libertarianism as a political ideology has, has always defined itself in reaction to, to others. Um, but there's a, there's another, uh, sense of, of reactionary as well, uh, that's at work in the book. Uh, and, and that's, that I think can be best understood in terms of the attitudes that different libertarians have taken towards various inequalities and privileges and hierarchies within society. Um, there are some libertarians and there always have been some libertarians who look at those inequalities and believe that the proper application uh, of libertarian principles calls for their sweeping away. Um, and, and those are, those are the ones we call the radicals, um, right? Gender inequality, racial inequality, uh, economic inequality in some cases, a lot of libertarians in different contexts have looked at these things and thought these are deeply, deeply unjust and getting to a libertarian world isn't just a matter of, um, you know, getting rid of an over meddlesome regulation or two. Um, it's a matter of fundamental change to the existing system. Uh, a great example of that I think is, is Thomas Hodgkin's uh, essay on the natural and artificial rights of property uh, contrasted. The idea of that essay is that property is a natural right uh, and it's an absolute as a natural right. Uh, and so if we had legitimately established property rights, then libertarians would be committed to the defense of those rights. But if you look out in the world that we actually inhabit, that's not at all what we have. What we have is a system of property rights that's been established by force and by fraud, and by the establishment of government privilege. And so if you're really a libertarian, um, if you're really a libertarian, your basic you know, approach to politics isn't going to be, let's cut taxes, right? right? Or let's, you know, let's keep the government's hand off our backs, right? That, that sort of attitude sort of presupposes that the existing distribution of po- property is basically just, and that what's unjust is the attempt, any attempt by the government to come around and meddle with that. Um, but for Hodgkin, the whole system was unjust. And so getting it right was going to require a fairly radical change. On the other hand, um, you do have a number of libertarians who 
uh, have taken and continue to take a different view about um, inequalities and privileges within society. Um, namely the view that these things are uh, basically just um, and that libertarian principles call in a sense for their support and defense. Um, and so sometimes you see this playing out in terms of a kind of um, rationalization of existing hierarchies. You see this in, and I'm not, I'm, I'm, I should say here, I'm not, um, I'm not trying to say that the radical view is always correct and the reactionary view is always wrong. Um, I think it's, it's a mixed bag depending on which particular inequalities we're talking about here. Um, so this, this is a analytical concept, not a, not a normative one, but so for instance, you, you know, you see libertarians talking about things like the, the gender pay gap, uh, and some libertarians approach to that is to explain why that inequality really is okay. Right. Um, because it reflects people's choices or because it reflects sort of natural differences between men and women in terms of risk preference or, uh, you know, the, the need to, uh, or capacity to become pregnant and, and care for children. Um, but the idea is like, this isn't, this isn't really something we need to worry about because it's, it's fundamentally compatible with libertarian principles. Um, more tendentiously, maybe more radically in some ways, right? Some libertarians, um, have always been, um, defenders of the idea of, of a natural inequality among human beings that some human beings are simply more talented, more ambitious, um, more morally virtuous in, in various ways than others. And so the, the marketplace or the distribution of wealth will, uh, and should properly reflect those underlying natural differences. Um, you see this obviously in someone like Ayn Rand, right? Uh, both in, in her novels and in her nonfiction work. Um, but you see this also in, in Murray Rothbard, right? This famous essay, egalitarianism as a revolt against nature, right? The idea that you know, nature is inherently inegalitarian, the attempt to impose equality upon that, that's, um, that's going against nature. Um, Albert J. Nock, um, H.L. Mencken, even these earlier 20th century libertarians were very, very inegalitarian in their approach. Um, right. So, um, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of different forms that this, uh, this attitude towards, uh, inequalities and privilege can take, but, um, it's, I think it's a useful lens for understanding some of the differences we find among the libertarian family, um, in terms of, uh, what's, what's your default attitude towards an inequality, right? Like if you see some inequality in society, uh, is your first instinct to defend it um, as compatible with libertarian principles, or is your first attitude to kind of scratch your head and say, like, um, I wonder if something fishy is going on here. But one thing that struck me as you were, as you were talking about this is, is you said there's kind of this natural inclination among like the reactionary libertarians to see a, to see inequalities as the result of natural characteristics free processes versus the the radicals look at inequalities as kind of a sign that something's gone wrong a sign that something needs to be fixed and and what's interesting about that is that for a lot of libertarians and even kind of reactionary libertarians they look at they look out and they see things that appear to be 
odd market distributions or or issues in like economic um something weird is going on in the market something doesn't look right in the market that the the natural inclination is to think oh that's because of government intervention so people are overspending in this area underspending in this area there's shortages or surpluses those are the result of government in some way intervening and we need to fix it but what you're saying too is that there's there's basically an opposite thing of inequalities outside of the market or hierarchies outside of the market the the intuition runs in the other direction that it's simply natural um, and and so I'm wondering what what is the motivation for that is it simply that you have basically left-wing libertarians and you have right-wing libertarians and the right is one way to define the right is is a belief in natural hierarchies and a defense of them um, a defense of social hierarchy a defense of class and gender and ethnic racial hierarchies and opposition to what anything that would flatten those so that could be the state but it could also be you know civil rights movements or um, or social change or the me too movement or black lives matter and so on what what gets at that disconnect Good question, and, and one that doesn't, I think, admit of a super easy answer um, or a single answer. Um, I mean, I think there's there's a number of things going on there, right? So uh, I think there is a underlying belief in natural inequality and natural hierarchies among a lot of libertarians, um, uh, a phenomenon that uh, or a belief that they share with the right, um, broadly speaking, I think that's the defining commitments of, of the right. Um, there's a kind of status quo bias at work there too, I think, right? The idea that, um, you know, we're sort of comfortable with the, uh, the system as it is more or less, um, that, that provides at least a kind of fixed reference by which we're to judge proposed changes. Um, there's a, there's a kind of perspectivalism at work there as well, right? Like, so um, the injustices you see depend on where you stand in society. And so if the demographics of libertarianism are such that we're drawing most of our members from particular racial or gender or socioeconomic lines, um, it's just it's going to affect the way we see the world. Right. Um, right. If we're not the ones getting pulled over by the police for, you know, driving in the wrong neighborhood after dark, or uh, if we're not the ones, you know, being subjected to sexual abuse um, and harassment at the workplace, um, if we're not the ones, right, trying to cross a border to provide for our family, right, then those, those in injustices, those, you know, infringements upon liberty just aren't going to be as salient to us. And so, uh, we're not going to pay as much attention to them when we're constructing our theory. There's also, I think, some um, some less objectionable explanations for this phenomenon, right? Like, you know, libertarians tend to, uh, especially libertarian economists, tend to put a great deal of emphasis on what is not seen as opposed to what is seen, right? So it's always an attempt to find the kind of hidden explanation 
uh, for what's the observable phenomenon. Um, you know, what's what are the opportunity costs, right? What are the the underlying um, trade-offs that are at work um, in in the resulting outcomes that we observe? Um, you know, that's there's a kind of a playfulness and delight there in coming up with um, explanations for phenomenon that that are counterintuitive that don't uh, that wouldn't be obvious from from just looking at the service level. Um, so there's there's all of those things going on, I think. But it's um, it's puzzling that libertarians don't pay more attention to um, issues of historical injustice, um, issues of um, hierarchy and um, inequality out outside the kind of obvious instances of the use of state power given their kind of fundamental moral commitments, right? Like, you know, if you read somebody like, you know, if you read a libertarian philosopher like Robert Nozick, right? Um, you know, the most famous among academics anyway, the libertarian philosopher of the 20th century. Nozick explicitly puts forward his, his libertarian theory as a historical theory of justice, right? So how, you know, whether a distribution of wealth is just or not depends entirely about how it came about. Um, and in one sense, that has a kind of profoundly inegalitarian implication, which is that you can't judge a distribution to be unjust merely because it is drastically unequal. Um, it depends on how that inequality came about, right? Like if the inequality came about because I stole from you, well, that's one thing. But if the inequality came out because I got lucky or I worked hard or, you know, a whole host of someone gave me a bunch of money, um, that's a different matter, right? And a just distribution is one that comes about by just steps. Um, but it also means that if if it didn't come about by just steps, then all bets are off. Um, and it's pretty manifestly obvious, you know, whatever your particular theory of libertarian justice is, that the distribution of wealth we got in the United States didn't come about by just steps. And, you know, you don't have to go back to slavery or the conquest of the Native Americans to to see that we've got ongoing government intervention that shapes and distorts the distribution of wealth up to the present day. Um, so it's, it's puzzling in a way, right? That this wouldn't be kind of more obvious and more salient to libertarians. Um, you know, the, you know, if you really want to be committed to those libertarian principles, uh, that's, that's a very different thing from just defending the status quo. Yeah. And I think that that's a clearer way of putting the, the question that I meandered and rambled my way through is it seems like for a lot of libertarians, there's a tendency to, it, when it comes to the economy and kind of misallocation of resources, to assume, like to look for why, the, why government intervention messed things up. But when there are, there are inequalities in social and cultural stuff, to start looking for explanations for why those are natural. And so you see a lot of interest in say like evolutionary psychology which often gets as a way as used as a way to show that that gender differences um in terms of capabilities accomplishments and so on power relations are natural or i i recently like scott alexander of slate star codex is like a darling of a lot of kind of mainstream but leaked emails from i think 2014 show that he started slate star codex 
explicitly to mainstream neo-reaction and to push human biological diversity theories. And he talks about how compelling those are. And those are those kinds of things also have like a popularity in terms of, oh, well, racial these racial differences are the result of natural qualities, genetic differences, and so on. So I think that's what I'm getting at is there's this asymmetry in on the one hand, looking for an explanation from government, on the other hand, like trying to justify going out and seeking out ways to justify existing hierarchies. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it's it's not comfortable to maintain the position that a more just world would be one in which many of the privileges I enjoy would be stripped away, um, right? That, that many of the comforts and privileges I enjoy in my life are the result of uh, ongoing and, and historical injustice. Um, I, I think that's, that's true, uh, but it is, even, even for somebody who believes intellectually that's true, it's hard to sort of go about your day-to-day -day life, right? Like really holding that belief from the well, center. Well, I mean, from a libertarian standpoint and the, the principles that you've, you guys sketch out in the book that are kind of like the basic things that define libertarianism. I mean, you go down that path, it gets pretty radical. I mean, you can get quite radical. To the, if you if injustice is your biggest concern, and we look at the nature of property acquisition and priv privilege and all these things that we say, well, what currently exists did not arise from justice. Well, then therefore we have to violate our principles about private property, perhaps with taxation that compensates for that, and maybe violate a bunch of the principles in order to rectify that injustice. And so it could push you pretty far away from the core principles of libertarianism if you apply that consistently to a very radical, almost socialist type of belief system. Yeah, I mean, so there's that, right? There's, there's the question of historical injustice and what to do about that. And that's that's a difficult question that I I still don't have a really good and satisfying answer to, even after thinking about it for, for decades, right? Um, so if, if the issue is that um, say a hundred years ago, uh, group A committed massive injustices against group B. And so as a result, now a hundred years later, you know, the, the descendants of group A are much, much better off than the descendants of group B. What should we do about that? I mean, there are, uh, there's a, there's a good argument for making rectification. Um, even if that involves subjecting innocent people to, um, um, you know, to, to taxation and redistribution, um, uh, there's a good argument for not engaging in that kind of rectification as well. Um, and I'm, I'm not completely sure how to resolve that tension, um, other than it seems to me like simply ignoring the problem is, is probably a bad approach to take. I, I think though, I mean, one, this is one issue that I, I see happen often is the the jump from if we recognize that there is a problem, therefore, what that recognition means is government intervention, right? And so we could yeah. say, like, if there's if there's this misallocation of resources because of past injustice, it might be that lot, well, lots of people would then call for government redistribution, higher taxes, more regulation, whatever it happens to be, right? Uh, but and then therefore, a lot of libertarians say, oh, well, because call if we recognize it, it means bringing the state in therefore we're going to not recognize it or we're going to we're going to come up with ways to argue that it's not the problem it looks like or that we shouldn't recognize it but 
in a lot of cases, these things tend to have, I think, genuine libertarian answers. So our friends on the like the left market anarchist people, uh, the ones who are still to this day have the, the Molinari views against rent and against capitalists and bosses and landlords and so on. Like one of their arguments, which I find relatively persuasive, is that government intervention kind of maintains a lot of those prior unjust distributions and unjust hierarchies. And that, in fact, if the solution to that sort of stuff to pass injustices is not more government intervention, but is instead getting the government out to a radical degree, allowing the free market to function to a radical degree, and that that will naturally dissolve those, will naturally will markets tend to redistribute that's how they work is like you create value and then i get part of it through positive externalities through trade through competition it markets dissolve a lot of these things but there seems to be a real lack of desire to to acknowledge that instead the kind of default position is to downplay the past injustices Right. In order to kind of stave off the the calls for government intervention, right, which is, is not not the way <laughs> that these kind of arguments are supposed to work, right? Like you don't um, you don't get to deny the existence of a problem simply because somebody the solution that somebody's proposing to it seems unpalatable to you in different ways. Um, so you know the problem is a real problem. Um, what we do about it is, uh, I think, you know, an open question. My my own view is that, um, although I, I have a tremendous deal of respect for and admiration for a lot of the work that the contemporary left libertarians, you know, people at Center for a Stateless Society, have, the Molinari Institute have done, um, I do think they are, in, in some cases at least, overly optimistic about the leveling effects of, of free markets um, that um, that that by itself would be enough to achieve the kinds of um, egalitarian goals that they they have in mind. For instance, I, you know, just to give one concrete example, I'm uh, I think they're quite overly optimistic about the prospects for workplace democracy. Um, you know, I think this is this is a case where the economists largely had it right uh, in saying that you know the explanation for why we don't have more worker owned and managed firms isn't just at least um you know state regulations and control it's that um you know, most workers don't want that uh they you know a lot, a lot of workers would just rather go to a job work collect a steady paycheck uh, and not have to be involved in management and, and profit and loss and all that what do you hope that people if someone is a self-described libertarian or is interested especially given the state of libertarianism now which we don't really have to get into that but uh, what would you hope that people take away from the book in terms of getting a better understanding of, of what it's about? So if, if there's one central message of the book, it's that libertarianism is, you know, no, no matter how many libertarians you know or have talked to or argued with, libertarianism is a much more radically diverse intellectual movement than you probably recognize. There are a lot more ways of being libertarian than most people recognize. I mean, that's certainly true of my friends in the academy who, uh, for the most part, understand libertarianism almost purely in terms of one book by Robert Nozick. 
Um, but I think even people in the broader libertarian movement, uh, too, we have a tendency to lose sight of, of the possibilities, uh, that are out there, um, to get caught up in overly caught up in the debates of the day, you know, the Mises caucus versus the classical liberal caucus or, um, you know, that kind of thing. And I think just understanding and appreciating how many different forms libertarianism has taken, um, you know, the ways in which it has varyingly aligned itself with the right and with the left in different times and different contexts. Uh, I think that just that kind of knowledge can be liberating in the sense of opening up possibilities um, that can help us rethink what libertarianism can be in the future, uh, recognizing that libertarianism's alliance with political conservatism um, isn't uh, a necessary feature of the ideology, but an artifact of the particular political and economic circumstances of the 20th century, circumstances which by now are largely defunct, um, that, that helps us see that, um, you know, we, we're not wedded to that alliance. Um, you know, there are going to still be issues where uh, I think libertarians do have the potential to make common cause with people on the right, but, um, um, there are going to be potentials for new alliances on the left, maybe issues that, um, dropped off our radar as, you know, not important, not salient, um, because of that alliance or because of the circumstances we found ourselves in, maybe we can rethink those, um, think about, about new forms that liberty can take new issues that should capture our attention, um, so that's that's the underlying message is that uh, you know there's there's not just one way of being libertarian. Um, there have been a lot of paths that libertarians taking, and there are a lot of paths moving forward that we have a choice uh, of which to take in the future. Thank you for joining us on Freedom. This is a listener-supported show. If you'd like to get access to episode transcripts, bonus content, extended conversations, and our Discord community, go to freedom.audio/join.